All right, everybody. Welcome to Theory Underground. I'm David McCarricker, the host. And today our co-host is Michael Downs of The Dangerous Maybe and one of our favorite living professors and theorists, Dr. Todd McGowan. Welcome. Good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. for It's been a while. Last time it was to talk about what? It was for the stream in defense of theory. Remember? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, now, now, uh, now I'm based in Mexico. I've been here for a week. I just moved here. And, uh, so I quit my job at Amazon and I'm trying to live as cheap as possible. And I just got my computer and my recording set up today. So, um, this is like the first real thing that I'm doing with Fury Underground now that I'm in Mexico. And so it's really exciting to do this with you. Michael wanted to have you on specifically to talk about uh, not just one of your books, but three of your books. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, basically. I, I, I want to talk about uh, universality and identity politics, the racist fantasy, and enjoyment right and left. And talk, like you had two books come out. What was it in the same month? I think they the same day, maybe. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the racist yeah. fantasy and enjoyment right and left have just come out. And so I, I'm seeing these two books as an ex, as an application or extension of what you've already started to lay the foundation of in your other books. I mean, particularly, particularly universality and identity politics. And I guess what the reason I really wanted to have this conversation is to connect the dots, so to speak, because I, I, there's a great consistency between the books, but I don't think there's been an opportunity for you yet where you really get to kind of show the overarching consistency of what your political theory is. And that's what we're, we're going to try to do here today. That's great. That's great. Awesome. Dave, I hope you like Mexico better than Amazon. That's, that's I like it better than America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, I, I know there's a couple people like Ben Burgess has lived in Mexico. I like a lot of people I know are expats that live and this guy that does, uh, revolution now, or one of these, I, I forget the name of the podcast that and I forget his name too, but, uh, he lives in Mexico. So it's that, that kind of expat move to Mexico is, I thought you were on a rackets from your, from your background, but I guess <laughs> <laughs> for June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I I'm not I'm not an expat proper. Uh, just courting the idea because uh, I right now there's a sort of lax relation between Mexico and the United States when it comes to Americans. If they want to visit, if they have a passport, they can stay up to like I don't know, like a hundred and twenty or I don't know, like a, a long time, like I, like like maybe six months. I don't know. There's like this span of time that you can stay without being uh, like having a residential uh, visa. And so um, it was basically my fiance and I, we looked at the the costs of living where we were. We knew that that wasn't going to work anymore because she was paying $1,000 a month for her own tiny little studio apartment, right? Um, and for half that cost, we can have a two-bedroom, two bath nice nice place in aguas calientes and the you know the flight round trip is 500 dollars, and so it's like you just you just look at the cost and it's like well what are we staying here for for some people for some american friends who we love 
but we could always visit. And in fact, the chances are they're going to come and want to visit us and it's going to be more quality time when they come visit us anyway. So, right. but uh, the, the real, the real reason we're here is we want to learn uh, Spanish. And so, yeah. you know, save money. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. But I, I, I can see why a lot of uh, people who are trying to do the YouTube or, or. Right. I think that's right. Right. Here. People that are they're, like, they're, they don't have any need to be in a particular place. Right. So they, so why not live like, Comparing New York rents to somewhere in Mexico, it's not, I don't think there's much of comparison for sure yet. And where, where are you based? I'm in uh, Burlington, Vermont. So rents here are almost like New York City. They're really, I mean, it's really expensive. But, uh, you know, Please. I get, I have a job at a university, so it's not so bad. Nice, nice. All right, Mikey. Well, do you want to do you want to take people for a quick little speed run of these these texts or? dive into questions or how do you want to do this let's, let's dive into questions because i think the way i've organized it here will there's a kind of can, logical flow to them okay so todd what like zooming out a little bit so can you talk about like your basic approach to thinking um and what i mean here is because i've heard you mention this before you see a difference between hegel and deleuze slash nietzsche on the establishment of new ideas, right? It's like, do you create ideas or do you discover ideas, right? And so did Lacan create or did he discover the concept of objet petit a? And, I'm, and so I'm asking like, when you're approaching theory, do you approach it as I'm trying to create a new concept or do you approach it as I'm trying to find something to, to discover something that hasn't been discovered before? It's a great question. Yeah, I, I, I good beginning. I absolutely discover, not invent, right? So Deleuze and Guattari and what does philosophy say? I think they say this elsewhere too. Uh, philosophy is the creation of concepts. And I read that, I, I like struck, I crossed out that line in my text because I just don't think that's true. And I think if you want to, look, there are a lot of other differences, but in a way, you, if you wanted to say what's the difference between a Hegelian approach and a Spinozist Deleuzean approach, I think it would be, of course, negation would be a humongous part of it. And it's that's maybe related to this, but I think you, you could say it's where the rubber hits the road is this discovery versus invention question. And so I think it makes it much, you know, I don't necessarily, it's not just when reading something that you can discover a concept manifesting itself. It can be when you're watching a film or when you're you know, engaging with a play, reading a novel. It doesn't just have to be when you're doing a philosoph reading a philosophical work or thinking, trying to think theoretically. So I think that's a really important thing. And I think it, it it's a way maybe those would say the same thing. It's a it's a way to be open to everything because you could even in and of course this is important for psychoanalysis, but even in just a you know, like, let's say a response that one of my children, one of my twin boys gives to my, I see them give to me and I'm like, wow, that's interesting in terms of dialectics, right? So just, or a, a common everyday expression that why are people saying, like, I don't know, I don't have a theory about this. I'm just going to give this an example. I hear students say no cap all the time, right? No. <laughs> all the Zoomers I work with are saying it all. Yeah, so, so, okay. So I, I don't have a theory about it, but that would be something that I would think would be interesting to theorize. Like how, why is that, you know, what, what's at work in that 
the develop. So that that would be an example. It's an example of the way that I try to think about discovering ideas wherever they might be. And and of course, Hegel and psychoanalysis have been more important for me on that than other sources, just because they provide a basis for thinking. But I mean, I could imagine one day that I I I encounter something and I'm like, well, that may allows me to discover that Hegel was wrong all this time about I mean, maybe, right? So I, I, I would hope that I would be open to that possibility. Right. So um let's give the audience yeah, yeah, hold on. let me let me let me just hystericize for a second here. We didn't set me up as that's my role really, but that is that is my yeah, role. Good. Could it uh, a critic easily say that the dialectical system developed by Hegel is one that can never be disproven and that anything that ever could inform it is something that it's already kind of set up to appropriate or bring into its discourse? Yeah, I'm trying to think who it's that. I mean, that's certainly Karl Popper's objection to psychoanalysis and Freud. He thinks Hegel's a proto-fascist. I'm not sure that's his, his objection to Hegel, but certainly, I mean, it's in a way, I think Derrida says something like that, Dave. Like, yeah, he that, does. That yeah. The problem is that anytime anything you say against Hegel will prove Hegel right or it will fit in the Hegelian system. Uh, I, I don't think that's true for this reason. I think that Hegel's trying to think about the, I mean, if it could, I think, Obviously, I think he's right, so that's going to complicate this answer. But I'm trying to think. Well, but there, I think there could be. It's imaginable that. Well, there's, there's a non-contradictory experience, right? Like aliens come down to Earth. They have no. They they don't. I mean, I think Arrival's trying to get at this in some way. The film, right? Like it's trying to say what how. How alien can we imagine an alien language that's still a language? And would it still be would it still be alienating, right? Would it still be contradictory? And I think the answer in our arrival goes pretty far to say, well, not quite the extent that ours is. But what's interesting is they're sufficient they're they're sufficiently stuck in a certain contradiction that they need our help. Right? So I so in a way, maybe you're right because, but I mean, look. One thing I would say is no system can, no, no system allows for its own overcoming from within, right? Like that is true. That's true of every system. So when Popper objects to Freud on those grounds, or Derrida, that well, that's true of their like. Think, try to make it. Look at Derrida's text in the time he encounters an objection, and every time it's the same. It's always well, deconstruct. Construction is not this one thing that you tried to make it, and you're like, okay, that's not fair, right? So my claim would be just right back. Every system does that, but I think we can. I think arrivals an attempt to do it. I think we can try to imagine ways that challenge the the ways that a system works. So I, I, I think I, I, I think that's true of Hegel to the extent that it's true of every system. Uh, well, but I, I mean. I, I've seen you before talk about like a certain inconsistency, like Hegel wants desire to be recognition based. And for us as Lacanians, it's not. And so it's, it's, it's not like you can just easily 
say, oh yeah, it's desire based and it's jouissance based, right? And, and like as if they're just totally compatible. Like some part of Hegel's theory does have to be rethought because it's not just immediately it can't immediately assimilate the Lacanian concept of desire. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And the other thing I, I think is it's funny, this was the one I just gave a talk on this a couple of days ago. Uh Hegel's idea of war. Like I think Hegel's idea of war is internally inconsistent with his own system. Right? Like so because what does war rely on? The strict divide between the, the the friend and the enemy, right? And Hegel's entire philosophy is about how we can't have this strict opposition between the the self between identity and difference, right? That identity is always the identity of identity and difference, to put it in this infelicitous way. Yeah. Uh, so I think that I think there's a lot of th- I mean, the objection is I think that okay, but you're keeping the system. Yeah, but but I again I I I, I that's fine, but I do think there's always a point at which you're going to come to one of these objections, and maybe you're going to go, well, I, I can't keep the system anymore. Right. Like I, I don't, I can't, and, and no one, I don't think you can say in advance what that point would be. Right. Like it's, it's, it's all, but, but hopefully if ever, if people are honest thinkers, that's what they're, they're looking for. Right. They're looking for this thing that actually causes their own thought trouble because that's what's interesting to think about. Right. What, what fits easily within your own thought or within your own system is uninterested. That's why Freud, I think this is to Freud's eternal credit, right. That he, publishes the cases that fail. He doesn't he doesn't publish like look at all these great successes I had. No. Dora leaves uh uh Wolfman, it's key key's eternal psychoanalysis. They're, they're, all of them are bad. Rabin's dead. They're terrible. And they're they're interesting to him for that reason. And so people I love this critique. Oh Freud, all is he only does is fail. Oh yeah. That's what he's interested in. So I I mean Again, I'm not that invested in psychoanalysis as a practice necessarily, but I'm just saying I think what we're what we find compelling is the point of the weakness or the failure of the system. So well, I just that, that, that the point you can only reach that point through trying through to be as systematic system. as you can. Yes, right, 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 right. I think there's no non-systematic thinking, right? And no matter what it claims. That's where I wanted to go right before I let it go back to Mikey here was just to we, we've already out the gate brought up negation and contradiction and referred to Hegel's system. But uh, for the majority of my audience who probably hasn't read you yet, and hopefully they'll get around to it sooner because of this conversation, um, the traditional Hegelian uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis conception that's wrong, that's Fichtean, uh, you in your emancipation after Hegel really lay out uh, how it really what's being missed and that Slavoj was keen on uh, seeing is that Hegel is the thinker of contradiction. Um, he sees contradiction all the way down. He sees uh, it's ontological contradiction. It's logical contradiction. And so um, I think I brought this up in our last conversation, but I also want to assume an audience of people who did not see the In Defense of Theory stream and say, I just kind of bring it back up. The In that book, The Sixties by Todd Gitlin, when he talks about the dialectics of synthesis being so pervasive on the left uh, at, at its most, uh, at the new left's kind of boiling point, um, there was, it, it, what that kind of meant on the ground was that whenever there were disagreements, people would say, oh, these are just contradictions. 
That's just what happens. Don't worry, the synthesis will be realized in the actual revolution. And so people kind of kept deferring disagreement, saying, oh, we'll get to it. It's gonna it's gonna happen in the revolution. That'll sort it all out in the synth in the synthesis. And so I found your book is specifically really interesting because I think what it would say to that is, no, we have to think about those contradictions now. We can't put it off in, for this panacea moment. Is that right? Absolutely, Dave. Right. There's no that moment never. I mean, Hegel's whole point, I think, is that moment never comes, and. The, the the contradiction is precisely what we have. That's the end point. It's not. It's not okay. Work through the contradiction to a ultimate end point that is a synthesis. Instead, the contradiction is the end point, and the illusions of syntheses are the points on the way to the end point. Right. So so I I actually, if you're going to even employ the term synthesis, which you're right, it never appears in Hegel. It's a Fichtean uh, idea. Synthesis should be the error, the initial error that we get beyond to get to contradiction. So I think we should actually think it in the reverse that it's usually thought. And is is the idea of tarrying with the negative uh, related to this? Yeah, I think it's the same. I think it's the same. And I think that so that's a that's a phrase that appears in the preface to Hegel's phenomenology that then Hegel, uh, sorry, Hegel, the bunny slipped. But then Slavoj uses it the type Dolphin Women's early book. Uh and I think I think for negation and contradiction are almost synonyms for Hegel. Almost synonyms. The only difference is that contradiction negation, I think, implies something that you don't get this positive necessarily a positive moment coming out of it. Like in other words, contradiction is the the comp- it's it's the completion of negation, right? It's the way in which negation manifests itself. But, but basically, I think they're synonyms, and I it it, it could be it could instead of a I think the book is subtitled a contradictory revolution. My book on Hegel, it could have been a, a negative revolution, right? I don't think that there's that much of a difference between those two terms in Hegel, at least. I think there is a. I think the problem is I think with the way that negative like. I'm thinking of Adorno's negative dialectics, right? Like the way that that gets used is any positive assertion is ideological for Adorno. And I think that contradiction allows us a, a way after that gives us a positive assertion that's not, we don't, can't just dismiss as ideological. So that's why I tend to prefer using the term contradiction to describe Hegel's whole system rather than negation. But I think more or less they're synonymous. Awesome. And I, I, really quick, is the point then to come to terms with everything being contradictory or is the point to try to understand the contradictions as much as possible, which would be, which would the be the former, end point? The former, I think, is the end point, right? That, that you, you, you want to think through the contradictions to come to the point where you can reconcile yourself to the necessity of contradiction by thinking through every possible permutation of that's absolute of, knowing right that's absolute knowing exactly exactly so so he and 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 historically Hegel would be the first to acknowledge this historically the path to that point changes radically right depending on your Hegel just thinks he happened to be born at a unique historical moment where he was the first one could who could see that that contradiction was inescapable 
And what's interesting is, of course, after him, you bring up the 60s, after him, there was a flight from that idea to, oh, wait, there are ways to get around contradiction until, I think, psycho. Now, I think Freud is someone who says, well, no, I actually, I mean, Freud's not thinking ontologically, he's just thinking about the psychic structures and societal relations. Uh, but his point is, no, really, this is like the famous end of civilization's discontents where he says, I don't have the courage to rise up before my fellow humans as a prophet, right? Like, in other words, I can't give you any solutions because there aren't any. And that to say that, I think that's Freud's way of saying contradiction is, is what we have to do is find a way to reconcile ourselves with it, which is the first, I think that's the first alternative you laid out. So it's not just saying, oh, it's not throwing up your hands and going, oh, everything's contradictory. I, I can't do anything. No, you have to understand actually contradiction is an impulse to thinking things through and acting, not a reason to back up. And, and is this the major, major difference between Americanized, I'll just say Americanized Zen Buddhism because it's easier for us to judge the American version because we deal with it, but the, the sort of mystic Alan Watts style Zen Buddhism, which would say, yeah, everything's contradictory but then not trying to understand those contradictions in all the other variations. It's just, oh yeah, I I know that. And it's just like, oh, I just know that. Versus the Hegelian, Zizekian, Megalonite approach would be to say, no, saying you know it's not enough. You have to know how you know it. You have to actually work through it. Yeah, I think that's good. I I, I, I don't want to get in too much trouble about Lunison because I I have a colleague here, Adrian Ivakov, who who... Flavoy responded to 10 years after the fact, and then there's kind of a thing. So, uh, I, and he, his point was, no, Buddhism is, is, is multipolar enough that even in certain American versions, there's this, there is a grasp of working through that. And so I just don't, I just don't know enough to say, okay. you know, I have a colleague, I have a colleague here who's pretty insistent that uh, Buddhism practiced correctly is dialectic. So I, you know, I'm not, I, I don't, I just, I don't know. Hey, can I, can I rephrase the question then to leave yeah. Buddhism out of it? Let's leave Buddhism out of it. And let's instead just say a uh, kind of standard mysticism, which is the kind of idea of, well, uh, I know that all human attempts at knowing are pointless. Like, so, so why would I even bother with theory? Right. Uh, all I need is to say that we can't really know the things in themselves. And that's the end of the analysis. Right. So yeah. then the res the response then would be what the 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 point of the phenomenology of spirit is that you only go up in these like levels of consciousness by working through the contradictions. Right. Right. Dave, exactly. Exactly. I think Hegel's the great anti-mystical thinker. And that's a controversial statement because a lot of people have identified him with gnosis and 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 medieval mysticisms, but I think, he, in, and for the reason you just said, I think he's the great anti-mystical thinker because there's no short circuit to the divine. The divine is found through working yourself through all the contradictions that what he calls spirit encounters, right? So there's no, there's no shortcut to that point that you, you get to. And I think if you take the shortcut to it, it, you end up being cynical. I think and that's the position you're describing. It's so cynical. Oh, that's the way things are. And I, and I think he, he, he's really pushing against that and, and, and pushing against any... Uh, in a way, I think mysticism wants to have a reconciliation with a position that it hasn't worked 
to get to, right? And I think that's what he, like, if you're going to, for Hegel, there is a reconciliation with contradiction. As Mikey said, that's absolute knowing. But you can't, you can't, you can't do what, you can't read the last page of the novel and then have the whole novel. I mean, that's a basic idea, right? Like, to, like to really understand, like, you could, okay, I know how Ulysses ends with Molly Bloom going, yes, I do, yes, I do, yes, I do, yes, right? But it's like, okay, so I know it. But no, you, unless you've gone through all of Ulysses, you don't really have a sense of what that even means. And I think that's Hegel's claim about the same thing about contradiction and, and the reconciliation with it. On the, the, the subject of mysticism, too, doesn't this lead us to the distinction between Kant and Hegel on the sublime? That for Hegel, there is no thing in itself. And for Kant, there is this other, you know, hidden realm. And so they have two different competing theories of the sublime. Yeah, you know, I, I've often thought about this line to the Critique of Practical Reason, where Kant says very famously, two things fill me with wonder. I think that's the German term might be wunder, so it might just be an actual, it might just be wonder. Uh, two things fill me with wonder, the, the, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. And I think Hegel would say, no, 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 only one thing really fills you with only one thing is sublime, and that's precisely the moral law within, exactly for the reason you're talking about, right? And I think what's fascinating is the way in which Lacan basically drops it, but in Seminar 7, there's this amazing stuff on Das Ding and sublimation. It's in two sections, two, two sessions. And he's very Hegelian, I think, in his notion of what the sublime is. And he, there, again, he drops it, but he basically says, in order for an object to be sexual, we have to sublimate it, right? And so it's the opposite of Freud for whom sublimation is the way we take sexuality out of the realm of sex and put it in some non-sexual realm. For Lacan, even, even the sex organ itself has to be sublimated in order to be desirable. And I, I find that, I think that's completely a Hegelian idea, that that the onus is always on us as the source of sublimation. So I think he takes part of Kant and then discards, which you're right, like that starry heavens above is the thing in itself part of Kant, right? And he takes this, the moral law part of Kant, the way our activity of giving ourselves the law, but what, I mean, not necessarily the law, whatever, for Hegel, right? Like the, the great work of art, he loved, his favorite work of architecture was the gothic cathedral and he would go whenever he went to visit a town in europe he would always go to the cathedral and he loved the way in which it created in a sense created god through this magnificent arch you know he thought it's this pointing it's the, this connection between the bottom and the and and the divine right and he thought that that was manifested in that huge arch and i i think that that to me that's a that's his idea of sub, the sublime and sublimation to a t just just to clarify so because I, I just want the listener to hear. Most of the time, like you said, when we hear the word sublimation, we have this idea that there's some form of primary sexuality. It can express itself in that primary pure form. So it has to be redirected into, quote, non-sexual activities that through this redirection become sexualized. But that is not sublimation for Lacan. It's as yeah. simple as something being positioned in the empty, I know we, the empty spot of Das Ding, but what it means is 
anything that we position to fill the void is what is sublimated. So it's not it's not like there's some pure sexuality that gets redirected. It's anything that gets positioned in this sublime sexual position is what is sublimated. Correct. Correct. And it's our act of positioning it. Looking awry, so to speak. Right, right. And and, and, and Lacan gives the example of this guy, Jacques Prévert, a friend of his who collects matchbooks, right? And like that becomes the, or matchboxes, I don't know what they're called. Uh, that becomes the sublime. And, and what's interesting is the way in which the matchbox has this empty space within, right? And that's the, so it's that empty space that is the source of the sublime. And I think this is, to come back to this critique of Hegel thing, right? Like, isn't this something that Hegel doesn't quite conceptualize in his idea of sublimation, the way that really for something to be sublime, it has to have an empty space at the heart of it. I mean, maybe I gave that example, the cathedral. So maybe you could say there's an empty space there, but he doesn't emphasize so much that I think. Uh, so it, again, it's this way, it's a limit, I think of his, maybe because he doesn't have a sense of un- the unconscious in the Freudian. Well, and that's what that. you do. I mean, you and Slavoj both, you've connected Lacanian psychoanalysis to Hegel because death drive is oriented towards these points of contradiction or negativity. And it's like you're bringing in, like that's the moment of sub, the sublimate, the sublime object is connected to negativity and to contradiction. And that's right. this like fundamental point at which you connect Hegel to Lacan. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And so somehow, somehow this, this is setting us up here to talk about basically what identity politics, the universal versus the particular, which leads us into the right versus the left forms of enjoyment and, uh, your, your book on the racist fantasy and the politics of left and right enjoyment. Right. And just to to, to add to that, what I love about that, your political theory and and like Slavoj's political theory, right. And there's, there's differences. I want to talk about some of these differences I know between the two, but they are rooted in an, in an ontology, right? And that's, I think, what is an advantage that you and Slavoj have, where a lot of political theorists just want to start with politics, and they're not rooting it in ontology. And it's easy to read one of your books, you know, Universality, Identity Politics, Racist Fantasy, and not understand that there's this whole ontology this political theory is rooted in and so i'm glad we're talking about the ontology first well that's a good that's like that's a great point yeah it's absolutely true and it's maybe only evident in the hegel book right like i'm not sure that i'm not sure it's evident in the other books but it's definitely there in the book on hegel and i think that that's really important like i think that you can't Obviously, you can have a political theory that has no ontological pretensions at all, but I do think that uh, it, what's interesting to me is how difficult it is to to make that. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying I'm the you know God's gift to political thinking. I'm just saying it's hard. I think it's hard to think think about like Hegel doesn't really have a political pro- project, right? He just doesn't. He just doesn't philosophy of rights not really about what how we should act politically and same with Lacan there's no political project uh and then and 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 I was even thinking of Jean-Paul Sartre a great thinker about ontology he has trouble making a connection to a political 
Like when he gets, to think existentialism and Marxism together is always a problem. And I, and, 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 but I think that there is a way in which uh, dialectic it nicely does feed into a certain political program that Hegel himself didn't recognize, maybe because, again, this idea that he didn't have access to the idea of the unconscious or uh, I don't think he had a his understanding of capitalism was a little limited, I think, compared to obviously compared to Marx. Whatever it is, I think I think it fully developed it. So and also, of course, there's no idea of enjoyment in Hegel's thought, right. really. So that I think he doesn't understand political. I mean, although it is it is interesting that he's the first to say that logic is ontology. So he was already making these leaps between one branch of thinking and another. Right. Like he wasn't just content to say, oh, uh, this is logic over here and this is ontology over here. Instead, no, the way that we think through our logic has ontological implications. And I, th- I, and I just think if you are thinking about politics like if you're not thinking about the psyche of the people involved and then about the existential situ- ontological situation of the people involved, then th- you're, I don't think you're going to get to why they're doing necessarily what they're doing, which I think this is really... Back to, no, this comes back to one of our ongoing issues with Marxism, despite our fidelity to so much of what Marx had to say. He doesn't have a worked out ontology. He doesn't have a theory of the subject. And Marxists want to just kind of brush that off a lot like it's not important and while at the same time he doesn't have a an explicit worked out ontology he does have ontological presuppositions about what human beings we primarily are trying to seek what's in our best interest he inherits this from smith and them because he's working with their presuppositional framework but the point is i guess that's what i'm saying i admire is a theorist who who takes ontology into politics because they often seem disconnected. Like, so with Hegel, we get the ontology. We don't really get the political application of it. With Marx, we get the politics, but not the ontological foundation of it. And so that's what you and Slavoj are always doing is working this out. And you're trying to do that. Yeah, 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 that's true. Okay, so... That that's I mean that's kind of the what I wanted to do with the ontology stuff where we understand like negativity when we talk about Hegelian dialectics what we're talking about is how a thing is itself but also what it is not and that it has what Lacan would call an extimate relationship to itself so something other to it is actually constitutive of it and you can't view things in this Aristotelian substantial way as isolated independent things that are what they are in and of themselves end of story no to understand the core of some object or event or institution to understand it ontologically is to understand it dialectically which is to say to understand how it is what it is not and that what it is not is integral essential to what it is like it's it's this twisted uh ontology but and it's not simply that dialectics is you have one substantial thing and another substantial thing and they come into opposition to one another and then they have a struggle and then somehow they combine into a synthesis. No, what dialectics is all about. I mean, we see this in phenomenology of spirit 
It's about getting at the negativity or the contradiction within the thing itself. So since certainty, it's not about juxtaposing it to the next mode of consciousness, which is perception. Since certainty is intrinsically split within itself, and it's through working through these contradictions, working through this negativity in sense certainty, that we're able to see the possibility of perception even open up. And so it's not about uh, any kind of like combination has formed within sense certainty that get us to perception. It's seeing the failures of sense certainty that get us to posit perception. I, I don't know why I could add to that. It was perfect. perfect. And so, yeah, and that's perfect. right. Yeah. And then w once we get to science of logic, we're doing the same thing, but it's not with modes of experience. It's with the fundamental categories of what he calls logic, but also ontology. So you start with being, you go to nothing, you get to becoming, and, and all of it is working through the contradictions of each one, getting to the next one. And so absolute idea, which would pivot back to being or this initial immediacy is the immediacy of realizing everything is contradictory. But I've got to work know. through all of it to get there. Yes. Do you know why Hegel died of a curable form of cancer? How come? No, because he convinced his doctor that oncology was reducible to logic. <laughs> no, you didn't like that. I, I, I made that joke on myself. We got a dad, a Todd dad joke. We got a Todd dad joke. <laughs> it needs a little work, I think. Okay. Wow. No, that, I, I just, I totally agree with that. I think that the, you know, the only thing I would add, it's interesting that Hegel had this thought before modern physics shows us that it's, it's literally true, right? It's literally true that at every moment, every obstacle, let's just take this pen that I have my hand, it's, it's becoming what, it's exchanging molecules with the air around it, right? So it's not, and this is the problem I have with, with this other very important line of thinking today, object-oriented ontology, right? Like its claim is, wait, there are just these objects that are isolated from other objects in the world, and I, I would like to meet such an object, right? There are, there are any. So that I think it's interesting to me that Hegel has this understanding of the way, and he gets it from, I think he gets it from language, actually. Like, he understands the way in which, uh, in order to for something to to call something anything, we had it had, and this is very interesting. This is well developed in so Ferdinand de Saussure, uh, that things language is a system of differences, not a positive term. So, I I know what a uh, pillow is because I know what it's not a sheet, right? I know what a chair is because I know. It, distinct from a sofa. So all these distinctions are what allow me to understand what a thing is. I think Hegel has a real intuition about the intuition in the non-philosophical sense, intuition about this and the way that language functions. And that allows him to, to see the structure of thought that Mikey just described, the way in which a thing becomes what it is through its relation to what it isn't and its otherness. The other thing is, I think it's a way that he, he's very concerned with becoming right like that at no what in other words if i if i uh am i the same person that i was five minutes ago well in certain sense yes but in another sense no my body's changed a certain amount i i'm probably closer to dying unless somebody uh, invented a cure for the disease i'm going to die in in the last five minutes then maybe i'm not uh but there's a there like I 
And and Hegel's response is, it's interesting, I think the Humean response would be, no, you're just different. Like every moment that passes by, David Hume would say, you're just you're different. All there are is just different. There's no identity at all. And Hegel would say, no, there is identity. And, and Kahn would say, well, there's this transcendental eye of apperception that accompanies all my, and that stays the same no matter how much I age or whatever. Hegel would say, well, I'm both, my identity is precisely it's the way it becomes, right? Mm-hmm. The way it alters. So he would, he would, in a way, Hegel wants to have it both ways and wants to say, what I am is what I am not, just like you were saying, right? And that, and that, and, and, and it's because it, it's in relation, yes, but it's also in my own becoming. Well, and that's Lavoie's critique of Derrida in For They Know Not What They Do. Derrida wants to go, look, identity is essentially bullshit because it's just this Saussurian difference, right? It's differance. So the thing's always differing from itself. It's always deferred onto the next thing. But Slavoj does the Hegelian reversal and go or inversion and goes, yes, and that is identity. Right, right. And exactly. so, right, that's kind of where we, we see this uh, inversion uh, fold back on itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so... Um, but no, and and so this is I, I this was important because, and, and I love I think the best short formulation for this Hegelian ontology is is yours. It's the whole that's whole, the whole yeah. whole, and, and so it's you know, it only works in English intelligently. Right. Say what? But it only it only works in English. It doesn't work in German. Right. Really? Okay. They don't have the the words aren't the same. So. It's the whole or totality that whole has holes or gaps inside of it. And those gaps always something new can come out of them. It's not like what once you tarry with them, it's it's over and done. Yes, there's a certain sense where you move on, but these these gaps within the system can always be productive of something new or a new friction and new contradiction can emerge. And so the totality or the whole is not this this image of it that so many Marxists and critics of Hegel have, which it's like a frozen totality. No, it's the gaps inside of it, the failures inside of it that can always produce something new. And so it's, I think it, it comes back to Dave's thing about mysticism, right? Like I think mysticism thinks that there can be a whole, like not all, I mean, there's not one mysticism obviously, but I think in general mysticism thinks that there can be a whole, that we can grasp and and without the precisely this whole that makes it impossible. Like, I think when Hegel says the, the, the true is the whole, what he means by that with a W, what he means by that is precisely the whole is what allows us to see the holes. That's why it's the truth. Just in the way you're saying. Exactly. Okay. So, and then, okay. Or go ahead, Dave. I mean, if you, if you've got, I don't want to cut you off here, but um, I wanted to. I, I'm big, like, if you want to say that, I'm about to move into the more political stuff. And so. Oh, this will be a transition, perhaps, or I yeah. could maybe help segue it because uh, my my uh, my question is basically, so what? So so and and I, you know, obviously I feel like I know the so and I might know I might know the answer, but uh, but also I might not. And and I definitely think that a lot of people listening in if they weren't familiar with this discourse yet they might go okay but like okay so we're supposed to see contradictions all the way down so what um and so when we when we bring this to the political uh 
how does this cash out is basically what's what question. what's at stake what's, what's at stake yeah well yeah and, it should be yeah good yeah okay because uh, obviously people see contradictions in everything and how and, and and one of the things that Arendt is critical of is uh how so much of criticism just becomes pointing out apparent hypocrisy right oh i could find a hypocrisy or oh you know we assume something authentic and then this person in some way does something that doesn't match up with that authentic ideal and then we critique them on the basis of that and so it's it's, it's this critique of hypocrisy and 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 because that is already something people are i think caught up in then well then what what is this kind of add and and for me well, I, I'm thinking, well, maybe part of the answer is that the general approach on the left is a fusionist approach. On the one side, you have sectarianism. On the other side, you have fusionism, right? And so how do, and fusionism basically being like, well, we all basically believe in the same thing and we kind of just need to ignore the contradictions and push towards that, towards doing something uh, versus the sectarians that are like, well, we've got it all figured out in our little bunker mentality, right? And so this approach I'm, I'm I'm thinking probably breaks out of that somehow, but I'm curious about how and and yeah, yeah, Dave, it's a great question. You're right; it does it does provide a nice move from the look to the over to the political question. And I think that the 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 number one thing I would so I would say it's kind of like Mercutio, you know, plague on both your houses. Like I think that both of those positions are are flawed. But I I what I would say is that one of the main political and it's not even being seen as political but existential political traps under in capital society in liberal society is that you see yourself as an isolated monad and i think it's very very hard not to look at oneself that way and the marxist alternative is often no you're just part of this collective right like you're not you're not isolated you're just part you're not even an individuality is a is a ideological myth you're just part of the collective and i think what and, and and i think there's a certain danger involved with that uh but i think there's maybe even more of a danger in the sense of yourself as an isolated monad and i think thinking contradiction thinking the connection between identity and difference or what you are and what you're not allows you to get out of that isolated thinking that's the main i think achievement of it but at the same time if you think the whole is whole as like you put it then you also can't think the collective is this thing i can just lose myself in and then solve all my own personal nightmares right? like I, I know a lot of not a lot maybe under 10 marxists who think who find that joining the collectivist movement is a way to escape all their personal beat like they they don't have to worry about that because I can, and I, and I can, and, and Marx and Jenny, this is true. They used to sit around the apartment and they'd go, well, after the revolution, we won't have to worry about it. And they said it kind of ironically, but I think, who knows how ironically. And I think that that there's a certain problem in that, right? Like, I think I'm not against thinking after the revolution, but I think we should always think it's going to be worse psychically. Like in a way, I think capitalism it's very clear the psychic damage it does. I mean, you, you've worked at Amazon, you know, there's a certain psychic damage that capitalism does, but it, do, it does have the nice side effect of allowing us to say, oh, all these problems I have are all because capitalism sucks, 
right? Like I could say like, why am I so depressed? Capitalism. Like I know I have so many of my students think this. Like, why am I this capitalism? Capitalism. Like if you, when I was a kid, these people used to say, and this is better, I think. Our maybe is a reflection of the fact that I teach it. We're left-leaning school. But people used to always say, why is everything so terrible? They'd say, it's the government. Government. The government. And now people just say capitalism. But I think in that sense, there's a certain relief that it provides. But anyway, my, I'm, I'm, I'm off because my point is just that I think it, it, it's a way to get out of this radical individualist thinking and a way to get out of this mass collectivist thinking as well because you think, you see the way in which the collectivity produces the singularity and the singularity can't exist without the collectivity. So I think that's why that thinking about contradiction is really important. And then to come to your second part of your question, I think it's, so then you would see it's both against sectarian thinking and against the fusion, but it would say, yeah, we have to all act together in a certain way, but we know that it's not going to, there's still going to be these contradictions that we're not going to solve. And I do think it's different than pointing out hypocrisy. Because one thing that Hegel does, he doesn't say like, oh, uh, David Hume advocated sense certainty. And look, he didn't. He went out and he like drank at the pub and didn't really, he wasn't really true to his own idea about sense certainty. And on his deathbed, he asked for the priest and blah, blah, blah. He doesn't ever say, I don't know if any of those things are true. Uh, I know he drank at the pub, but other than that, I don't know about the priest. Uh, but his point is, no, let's examine the idea internally on its own best terms. So when he looks at some idea, he's not saying like, oh, let's see how it, the person advocating it falls short. Let's take it at its best and see how it contradicts itself. So I think that seems to me pretty significantly different than what Arendt is, object I think, rightly objecting to about this pointing out of the hypocrisy of the people advocating a certain position. Who cares? But the point is, is the position itself, like, what is the contradiction inhabiting the position itself? And then how do we deal with that? So I think that is a different. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So if we move to your political theory, some of the basic terms we need to understand essential to it is Hegel's concepts of the universal and the particular. Can you talk a little bit about what he has in mind here. Yeah, so I, I, I should... So for Hegel, I'm a, my idea of universality is slightly different than Hegel, so I should, I should just preface with that. But uh, Hegel's idea of universal is what makes all... What, so for, I think... Let me say what it's not first. I think we tend to think we build up a bunch of particulars, and then from that we conceptualize a universal that then that that is the reflects the what all these particulars have in common i think this would be an aristotelian way of thinking so like there's there's particular cats but all of them have catness in common the platonic idea Correct. okay right 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 hegel's idea is the opposite hegel thinks what comes first is the universal and again i think this is his intuition about language leads to this what comes first is the universal, and then we get particulars that develop out right? So the particular, you, you might think of it this way, that universality for Hegel is the way that we, the distance that the particular has from itself. So, so universality emerges through 
every particular, like the particular not being able to be what it is. What you were just talking about, making the way in which a thing is both itself and its other, it's in that space between that there is universality. And then the way in which you universality distance the, distances the particular from itself uh, is the is how singularity emerges. So the distance I like, let's just I'll give you a concrete example just to make this clear. So I I'm I was born in Ohio. I grew up in pretty you know middle class. So parents uh, uh, white. Uh, I don't know all these whatever these things are uh, sports existentialist in high school all these things okay so all that's little particularity but then universality is what i i have some contact with the universal i meet someone that throws me out of my allows me to see that my particularity isn't everything right and then i that distance i gain from my that particularity i'm immersed submerged in is my singularity so that those three terms are very important to Hegel. So it's not just universality and particularity, it's universality, particularity, and singularity. And I think this is a gross way of saying it, but he he celebrates universality and singularity and in a certain way denigrates particularity because he thinks that particularity is what traps us in what's given to us. Right? Like that's that's your particularity. It's what's so the fact that so let's say all three of us got interested in theory, that's a way we, we were we were dissatisfied with our particular situation and we looked to some universality of theory as a way to get out of that, right? And find some distance from that. So I think that's that's how I would think of it in Hegel's terms, like that the, the, the universal is what makes the particular possible for him. It's not that a bunch of particulars come together to constitute universal. Okay, so... I am clarifying question. You said that the singularity is the the thing, the sort of this good thing, ideal or something like. I think this, so, perhaps. Yeah, you develop that singularity by realizing the ways in which you escape particularity through the universal and vice versa. Is that right? So you're, you're right, exactly, Dave. So you are precisely your alienation from your particular situation is your singularity. So contra Marx. For Hegel, alienation, it, the term he uses, it uses both terms just like Marx says, and fremdung or and oiserum, like they're both like so self externalizing or self distancing. Those are the two ter- terms in German. Uh, in both cases, though, it's this way which the universal rips us out of our particular situation. So for Hegel, alienation is what's universal and it frees us from this stupid particular situation that we're initially is given to us it's just given it's stupid it doesn't there's nothing you know there's nothing meaningful about it but i i think you know people have a kind of nostalgia about their initial given situation and they think oh it was so great even though it wasn't and they and what they fail to realize is that the way in which that the alienating power of the universal is actually a freeing power at least as Hegel conceives it. And that and it frees us up to be singular. And so I, I mean and, and that's part of what I mean, part of the appeal of this position to me is that we champion the universal, we champion the singular. It's the particular that's this problem that especially when it comes to politics, that keeps flaring up. And the idea, I mean, 
there's a universal dimension to all of us as human beings. And we want to affirm that, that universal dimension, while also preserving our unique singularity. And so I guess that's the attraction for me with Hegel, and that I do see the particular as this poisonous thing that always just keeps causing problems. But but necessary, Mike. Right? Yeah, like, but we can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it, right, because it's your symbolic identity, right? Like you yeah. can't, in, in terms of what Lacan would use, it's your symbolic identity. So you can't, it, it is this, it's this it's this trap that we can't ever fully escape, but it, but the struggle against it really is how we constitute ourselves in the singular. So I think that, that I think that's absolutely right. Like it's a, it's this thing, you know, it's, I mean, it's all the things that you, but the problem is that of course that we, we feel warm about these things. I've said, mentioned nostalgia, you know, like we feel, you know, it's the, it's the Christmas tree that we had as a kid or the, whatever the, yeah. the menorah, lighting the menorah, saying the certain things every uh, Sabbath. So, so there's all these things are, or eating at your fo- favorite local restaurants or eating at your favorite local, right. Eating local rather than at McDonald's, right? Like McDonald's yeah. is alienating. It's universal. It's everywhere. But I mean, I don't want to give capitals and too much credit, but eating at the <laughs> local place, that's really good. Uh, and it's just, you know, it, it's where your parents took you. And it's, so I think that there's, there's something there, that's why the particular is seductive. And we're not trying to get rid of that. That's a, it's I would but, like to make a, I hate capitalism, but I do want to give it its credit. McDonald's being everywhere when I traveled, when I've traveled the world, you know, it's, uh, I like it. I like how you're assuring to know you can get a bacon, egg and cheese wherever you are. Yeah. Cause you just try foods and then eventually you're like okay i just need a cheeseburger you know yeah yeah you know, it's interesting because i once was doing i once inside out uh giving a talk in croatia in zagreb and and i didn't speak the, i didn't speak croatian obviously and uh i mean i was, i feel as i should but whenever i do i don't uh and and i so but i said i started to go to all these different restaurants and I, i'm vegetarian so it was meat is that meat is in everything so they're like i'm like can i try to explain can i get something they're like no sorry we just can't so there was a luckily there was a subway down the street from my hotel and so i was like thank god for subway like i could go in there and i could say that 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 and that was i mean yeah. i was basically starving so i i could totally i hear you on that mcdonald's but help and i think you're right like that but but what that is is a way i mean they they also of course Stuck up to the particular in different ways, right? Like McDonald's in India, they don't serve hamburgers. I think they're all these kind. Of, they, they play a little fast and loose, which is why they're wrong. We respect your culture so much, right? I know, but they're not authentically. All of the McDonald's is they always have a local, locally defined uh, dessert. So, like the they have the apple pie in the United States and then it's like this uh pineapple pie in Hawaii and then it's like I forget what it was in Thailand but when we were just uh in Europe my fiance and I were on this trip um the McDonald's turned out to be a good vegan option for her in two occasions because she's vegan and uh the in Heidelberg actually uh they have like this this uh non-dairy McFlurry and it's it was actually amazing and and they don't have that at most McDonald's's, but yeah, you you're right. They do give a little bit of this wiggle room so that the local management or whatever they're able to make some decisions to localize. Right, right. 
Right. The, 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 the McDonald's in Vermont has Ben and Jerry's. Not just really? That's great. Well, that would be great. Uh, no, they don't. Ben and Jerry's would never go for that. Cool. Uh, even though they're owned by Unilever. But uh, anyway, so, yeah. I mean, I think that that... Sorry to take us on this capitalism sidetrack. <laughs> but the, the point is that why does cap... Like, it's interesting, though, right? Like, it does... There is this allowance to the particular in McDonald's precisely because capitalism isn't genuinely universal, right? Like, it's not... And I think that's a... I think that's a mistake that some on the left tend to make about capitalism, that they say it's this universal machine imposing itself on us. I think it actually is never genuinely universal. And this McDonald's concession to the particular, I think, actually, you know, you could say, oh, it's just a little minor phenomenon. I actually think it act- it reveals everything in a way, right? Like it shows that it can't be really universal because in order to ingratiate itself to the particular community, it has to make these nods to the particular. So I, I think that's pretty fascinating. And I think that gets to what, Either way, why I why I wrote the universality book because so many people had criticized capitalism as universalist and seen particularism as a way to defend oneself against it, and I thought, yeah, I think I I still think that the leftist abandonment of universality is in the wake of Marxist the failure of real communism. I think it's the great tragedy of the 20th century, really. Let me ask you this. Do you think that what we need here, like every time I'm reading you and you're making these points, I feel like there's a distinction between it's not just universality and particularity. It's that we confuse universality with generality, that capitalism does impose a general structure on things, but it's not the universal in the sense of it's 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 trying to obfuscate uh what we all universally lack in common, like the like the the real universality and this yeah. universal, what I would call general machine, is actually opposed to universality in the robust sense. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. And you know why Hegel could not have thought that? You want to know why? It's interesting. Why? It's really interesting because there's one word in German. Really, it's the poverty. It's the poverty of the German language. Allgemeine. It's like it's. Allgemeinheit is universality and it's generality, right? I mean, okay. there is this other, like you could say, there's an adjective, you can say universal, like you could, but it basically, Allgemeinheit is universality and generality. But I think I absolutely agree with that, that capitalism is general, but it's not universal. And that's the, that's an important distinction to make for sure. Yeah, and just to bring Baudrillard just in for a second. He often defends particularity. He he likes this idea of certain particular cultures fighting against this global general machine. But like I think he would say he would call it universal, and that's where I would say no. We got to make a distinction here because you you want to celebrate the universal. You don't want to, but I don't think he saw that. And I think this is where so many leftists, like you're saying, they conflate the general with the universal. And absolutely. That's- and then and I don't you think that. We should say that actually those fights against capital are universalist fights against the general capital yeah. machine. Yeah, yeah, totally. When well, well, you use the example in, in the enjoyment right and left, you use the example of the uh, the the Haitian Revolution, the revolutionaries 
uh, former slaves who had claimed their 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 liberation, um, making their appeals to the universal and singing the French songs that celebrate the universal as a point, right? Uh, so that the French Napoleon's army they were able to hear at night, hear these people we're attacking. They're singing this our songs, but it's not just our songs. These are songs that have always claimed to be universal, right? Yeah, I, that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right, right? That that and I that's maybe my favorite woman in all of human history. I think that it's reported really nicely by C.L.R. James in the Black Jacobin. Uh, I think it's I think that the Haitian Revolution is the most important revolution of the. Uh, 18th century, I think that uh, precisely for this reason, that they really brought out the universalist dimension of the struggle in a way that was obfuscated in France. And, 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 and the, the, I mean, the denouement is pretty terrible, uh, but it's largely the fault of Napoleon re you know, re enslaving slaves. Uh, what? Re Napoleon re enslaved, like, the, so when Robespierre and the Jacobins were in power in in Paris, they freed the they they freed all the slaves in Haiti, and then when Napoleon, after the coup d'état in 1800, he re-enslaved Haiti because he was he was helped into power by the colonial plantation owners in part by finance. Mm -hmm. So he, part, one of the promises was you're going to, and that's why there was this war that you referenced. That's why we had the troops, and then the Haitians were singing La Marseillaise and the Styra these revolutionary songs. And I think you're right that even though if you listen to Lamar Saint-Yes, the, the lyrics are kind of horrifying. They're about the blood, the pure blood of France. But but in fact, I think, no, it's really a song about universal revolution because it was tied precisely to freedom, equality, solidarity for all. So I, I think that, I think it, it is, that's a that's such a great moment. And it does, it may, it's a precisely a moment of universality you don't see really an American Revolution, I don't think, and you see in part in the French Revolution, but then you see in full flower. Okay, and so the kind of where the rubber really meets the road on this question of uh, universalism versus particularism, I think where a lot of people's minds are going to go immediately is thinking about how, you know, okay, someone like Bernie Sanders comes along pushing primarily universalist programs, you know, Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. And the pushback from the more particularist identitarian left was always like, oh yeah, universal, but you're a white man who doesn't want to talk about that, which obviously to some degree he did. But generally speaking, the critics of universalism aren't, nowadays they're not necessarily going after Marxism per se, but Usually it's some attempt at saying, well, we need a universal goods package or something like that. But where I was going to say where the rubber meets the road, it's not even at that level alone. It's also just for you, for it to be a genuinely emancipatory project, it has to be universal. But what we see in the French Revolution, as well as in a lot of other revolutionary situations, is it starts out universalist. And when it degenerates, it's, it turns into... Uh, focusing on the construction of the enemy. And you use that example of uh, Marriott, or how do you say his name? The French revolutionary. Uh, is oh, Marat. Paul Marat. Marat. Yeah, where he's known, he's kind of known for like sitting in the bathtub 
writing down names of people in the newspaper who are going to get you know beheaded, and that that phase of the terror uh, is the phase when the universalist program burns out and turns into it's all about our particularity and our belonging versus this enemy, right? Right, right. I think it's. Uh, I think it's like any time. It's a dicey situation. Like the French Revolution's die. I'm not sure how. I've had some qualms about my own book on this question because, you know, they they were faith. It's a dicey situation, just in this sense. Like I think, in general, I agree with what you both what you said and obviously what I wrote. But, uh, and that any creation of the enemy is always falling into this right wing form of enjoyment. That said, I think it's a, it's another thing when you're being attacked by all the other countries in Europe. You know, you it's not. You're not creating an enemy. An enemy has imposed itself on you because they're scared of the revolution being exported around Europe. So, I, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. I think, and, and I think you could, you could make the same case. I, I don't think I would make it so much about Stalin, right? Like that. There's, there's all this pressure from the rest of the world against, and that, you know, obviously that doesn't excuse the the show trials and the gulag. But I do think that puts it does put the left in a little bit of bind when it's in power, right? Like they're they're it's not just like everyone's going to go, oh, good, we have a nice emancipatory. Like think about think about Bolivia, which is a basically the Morales government, basically not not it wasn't aggressive in foreign policy and trying to export socialism around, and yet they faced a coup d'état, right? Like so they're so I think it's really a Again, I'm not more like uh, Place de la République uh, guillotining people, but I and, and creating enemies in that way. But I do think that it's tough to not to, and I think you have to. I'm saying it's tough, but I still think you have to avoid thinking in terms of the enemy. But right? you still have to think like, oh, this these are people we have to try to. Like coming back to the Black Lives Matter, where they say kneel with us, right? Come over on our side and kneel with us. Uh and I think that that's the that's the only way to do it. But but I do think you still have to defend the emancipatory structure that you've created from people that want to destroy it without making them into an enemy, right? So I think that's the difficult line to walk. I think it's very hard to walk that line. All right, let me ask you this about the enemy, though, because I, my yeah. question I've I've been thinking about a lot lately, reading your stuff, is okay. But is there a leftist enemy? And what I mean is, can leftist enjoyment have an enemy if the enemy is capital itself or the state itself? Isn't the system the true enemy of the leftist emancipatory politics? If the system is the true enemy, then you neutralize the ideological mechanism of scapegoating, which leads to universalism. What we all universally lack is freedom from the structural enemy named capital, named the state, named the system, uh, Zizek is all about objective violence or violence against the system or the structure of society. Uh, hatred of the system seems to lead to universal identification. Is this all wrong? Uh, I think that's probably Slavoj's position. I know it's Badu's position. It's not my position. So I, I guess, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong. It may be right, and I could be wrong, but I, I think here's what I think the problem with that is. And I think it's, I can see why it's pretty convincing. As you were saying, it's pretty convincing to me. 
I had to, I remember who I was to not fall. <laughs> um, but, but I think that, that there, the, to make the, the problem, here's the problem, I think. If you make capital, the system into the enemy, then you put yourself immediately in this position that if I get rid of the enemy, then things are going to be okay. And I also fail to see the way in which, and I think this is a very psychoanalytic and Hegelian idea. I am also the enemy, right? Like I am part of the enemy. Like when we're talking, we were all sitting around talking about how great McDonald's is. I was all in favor of it. I liked it. When I heard about that flurry, I was like, why don't we have that flurry here? It sucks. McFlurry or whatever it is. So we're that it's and that's not just an it's not just like capitalism imposed that McFlurry desire and be blah 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 blah. No. Like I really it's a genuine desire. So that's why that's my problem with that. My problem is But does it not mean that if I strike at the enemy, I'm striking at the enemy within myself too? Within. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see the point. I guess I'm striking at myself as consumer. Yeah, yeah. So my, my only thing is, and again, what I'm trying to say, I think your position is reconcilable with Slavoj's. I think it's how we word it, where uh, it's a matter of the signifiers. Because the point is, you want you want us to strike against the general, right? Right. Well, if we're striking against the general, we are its enemies in some way. Right. What right. you don't right. want, and what I agree with, you don't want us to, it's the Bartleby thing. Like, you don't want resistance against this structural enemy to become this unconscious loop we get stuck in, and we want to actually reproduce the enemy so we exactly. can keep enjoying fighting. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I That's what I don't want. And I also don't want to get attached to a certain fantasy that once we get rid of, like, I think we also have to, as, as Dave said, we have to give the devil its due, right? Like there are some capitalism did some amazing, like it created Coca Cola, it yeah. created McDonald's, you know, like it created some great things. So we should, I, I think, the problem with thinking of it as an enemy is we 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 miss that, and we miss the way in which it's not just the the worst part of us; it's also some of the things that that are that we that are pretty good in us that are tied to capital. Part of your thing with the enemy is that the enemy is always a substantial figure, and that's the problem. Right there, you go. There you go. That's the problem, right? And, and, and I, 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 right, and then and also that that if you get rid of it, then blue sky, the utopia. Like, what, yeah, yeah. I, I, I never. I'm, you know, if you live in Burlington, you can't see this out here. It's always great. It's always, and I, I think that's pretty good. It's a great sky. It's just I, I know, I know your theory where I. There's also a part you do want us to fight against the system. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely right. It's not an anti-struggle theory. It's like it's a pro-struggle. Yeah. Like the fact that we can't like there's this great, this great. I love this. I'm sure you guys both know it. The movie Lady from Shanghai by Orson Welles. In the end, they've gone. They've had this shootout in the magic mirror maze, and uh, Rita Hayworth says to says to Welles, she goes, uh, "What are you going to do?" and she goes, you're going to keep fighting. And, 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 and she goes, you know, you can't win. And then Wells goes, well, that means we can't lose either. And she goes, and you're not, and she goes, and he goes, only if we quit. And then she goes, and you're not going to quit. And he goes, never again. And I thought, I mean, look, that, to me, that scene is one of the great, because so we, it means if you say we can't win, it means we can't lose either. Right. 
only if we quit. I think that's absolute. That I saw that film like that's my political position. That's it, right? Yeah. There. Look, so that's yeah, that's it. Okay, so I feel like the whole conversation, like I've, it's been building to this. Okay, so, all right, your political theory is ultimately rooted in your Hegelian Lacanian ontology. Can you tell us a little? We already did the ontology stuff. Okay, but your the, the main concepts in your work are lack, absence, desire, drive, subjectivity, missing signifier, the real, um, a, a belonging and non-belonging, right? And universality, particularity. Okay, that's a lot. So what? What I'm wanting. Okay, can you can you run this thread and take as much time as you need? Okay, we start with universality and identity politics. What's the basic idea there at work? What's the problem with identity politics, et cetera? How does how does universality, particularity, factor into the racist fantasy? And then what's going on with these two forms of enjoyment? that you write about in the other book. Yeah. So the idea in the universality, the relation between universality and politics with us, that we are universally connected to each other. And I'm going to already make the connection all the way through, right with this first statement. We are universally connected to each other through our failure to belong. So that, that non-belonging is what is universal, but why? And so someone wrote to me and said, it seems like your presupposition is that non-belonging is universal. I said, not a presupposition. It's a fact. Because if any attempt to belong and to create a group of belonging relies on someone as else as a figure of non-belonging, otherwise there's no way to square the circle. There's no way to close the loop, right? This is a, I think this is an interesting way in which Russell's paradox has this incredible political implication, right? That he, I mean, Hegel already thought it in his own way about the the necessity of contradiction, but I think Russell articulates it in that, that we can never have this class of all classes that ends up. So we can't, there's always going to be within any system, some point of, of, of failure, right? So, so that this, and I think what he's really talking about is the failure of belonging. So if, if there is no belonging, we can only, we're all, what we share, what we have in common is our universal non-belonging. And identity politics is an attempt to flee from that and to say, no, actually, I belong to this certain identity, whatever it is. I'm I'm white. Like, you said, like I think this is one of the ways in which the language of white privilege is kind of, it's, it's saying like, no, no, I belong to white. I'm white. I belong. So I think one of the ways I think, I think that language is liberal and noxious. Okay. So. That's the, that's the universe. That's the idea. And then, the way in which that emerges into the racist fantasy is racism is precisely so. Modernity emerges with the discovery of universality, or the the, the it becomes increasingly evident. Racism happens, and racism happens at the same time. Emerges at the same time, alongside capitalism. Racism absolutely necessary. To beginning of capitalism and allows people to think, no, I do belong to a certain racial, I have an identity. So in this way, I think racism, the racism book was just an extension of that idea of identity politics brought into the, into thinking about race and the way that race functioned. But what gets added to it, and then this will go to the next book, what gets added to it is the idea of enjoyment and enjoyment is, so first, 
we enjoy our non-belonging. But that is a very painful thing to enjoy because it means that you're enjoying this failure, right? And your enjoyment is tied. You're you're going on through a failure. You're you're finding satisfaction in the failure. So, in order to avoid confronting that, you retreat to an identity and say, I'm, "I actually have an identity." But there's another figure who doesn't belong, and that figure who doesn't belong is the figure who, in, in the racist logic, is the figure barring me from my enjoyment. And I think there's no racism that doesn't use the racial other as this figure that is the barrier to one's own enjoyment. So that that you're, I would be enjoying myself, but for this racial other that I, and so, and then I extrapolate from that to this idea that. All right-wing politics, not all, I wouldn't say all right-wing politics is racist, but all right-wing politics relies on an enemy that it has external to it, that it sees as a barrier to its enjoyment. And it derives, it, and the thing is, I think this is why it's disingenuous always, and racist and disingenuous for this reason too, that it really enjoys through this figure that it it puts outside, right? It ex, it. It identifies this other figure as the figure of non-belonging and, and enjoys through it, but then does it like the, the, the way in which, let's just, the kind of McCarthy in the in the 50s in the U.S., right? Like McCarthyism, the McCarthyite, enjoys through the figure of the American communist traitor, right? Like that figure they hate, but they got, that's the source of their enjoyment. They think of all the activity they use to try to flush that, but they just, it it, 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 it it, it, it inspires their entire existence. And what they can't deal with is that it's the general structure of capitalism that's causing them problems. Absolutely. But, but they reify it or scapegoat it in the figure. Right. right, right. And so that, and, and, and it's also a way to retreat from what I think is the leftist form of enjoyment, which is this enjoyment of non-belonging. So it's an enjoyment that doesn't rely on the enemy. So it avoids racism it avoids the problem of identity politics, and it avoids the right-wing structure of the enemy. So I think that, in a certain way, leftist enjoyment is the final kind of point, right? Like it's the this enjoyment of non-belonging is the thing that, that is opposed to identity politics, racism, and right-wing thinking. And one of your favorite examples of leftist contradictory Emancipation is the film Heather's, correct? Oh, I love that film. Yeah. I've been, I, you know, I have to tell you guys something. So that example and the end of that film has been in two of my books prior and it just got cut. I just had to cut it for various really? reasons. Like, yeah, like someone thought it doesn't really fit or I just had a word. It was in the book on Hegel, I think. And I, I had this incredible word. That book was originally twice as long. It was 180,000 words. Oh, wow. I had to. And the press is like, you just got to, you're going to have to lop off half the chapters. I'm like, nope, I can do it. And I did cut off two chapters wholly, but, but I, uh, but I managed to cut, just cut, cut, cut. And that, Heather's thing had to go and it was in something else. But then I'm like, okay, I'm not getting it out of this one. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, I think it's, no, it's in the perfect book for it now. Yeah. yeah. So, and, so tell, tell the listener what's going on with Heather's. Okay. So Heather's is a book about clicks, basically. It's about identities about in-groups, about belonging. And the, the, the main group of belonging in the film is this this group of Heathers, three girls named Heather. They're at a high school in Ohio, Westerberg High. And there's the, the narrator of the film is played by Winona. 
a writer, and her name is Veronica Hodhander, but she belongs to the group of Heather. And the film goes, and, and a new guy comes to town, and he basically kills off a few popular uh, kids in the school, and then he ends up uh, killing himself at the end of the film. Uh, but after one of the Heathers is dead, another one has tried to kill herself. A third, and the, and the school's been almost blown up, This and the kid has killed himself. Uh, this third Heather is puts this red scrunched the red ribbon in her hair and she's she's assuming power the red ribbon is the sign of the heather that's in charge and veronica has ha- undergone this conversion away from belonging she's now on the side of non-belonging and the film begins with the heathers making fun of this most ostracized person in the school named uh martha dunstock and they call her martha dump truck she's a little heavy and she uh that she's depressed and she even tries to kill herself and fails and he make fun of her they said She's such a wannabe, she couldn't even kill herself like the popular kids do. Uh, anyway, so so uh, Veronica takes the scrunchie out of the hair of the, the last Heather, puts it in her own hair, and she goes, there's a new sheriff in town. And she walks down the hall and, and says to Martha, who's in a you know, scooter wheelchair, she says, uh, my date for prom kind of flipped out on me, blew himself up. Uh, I'm not, so I'm not doing anything this weekend. Do you want to get together, run a couple of videos and pop some pop? She goes, her first song, she goes, I'd like that. And then they, they walk down the hall together. Uh, so what she does, what I think is so fascinating about the end of the film is that she doesn't, when Veronica takes power, she doesn't just, she, do, she doesn't say, oh, I'm two things. She doesn't take power and just install a new black and rule like everybody else. And she also doesn't say, you know what? I'm not doing. I'm a retreating from power altogether. I'm just gonna go hanging out with the most insignificant person in the school, Martha, and I'm never gonna trouble myself with who's ruling the school again. No, she says there's a new sheriff out. I am taking power actually, but I'm gonna privilege the person who's precisely the most the figure of non-belonging. So that's what I really like about it. That is like, how could we imagine non-belonging and power? Well, I don't know. I think the Heather's tried to imagine what that looks like. Awesome. I've only seen the musical. I, 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 uh, Mikey told me. Shame on you. He said in preparation for this conversation. It's a great movie, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he said I needed to watch it in preparation for this. And I totally lost yeah. that. Sorry. I grew up watching. It's one of my favorites from the video. Yeah, I, I didn't see it, even though I was, you know, I was a teacher at Ohio State. I was just a graduate student when it first came out in 1989 in the fall. And one of my students, I was teaching freshman comp. And one of my students wrote a paper on it, and she was like, you know, I know you don't, whatever, students are dumb. And, but she was my best student. She's like, you need to see this. You need to see this movie. And so then I did see it, and it was, it was pretty great. I, I, I did really like the musical. But um, as far as, and I think it's the same plot. So I, I get Yeah, I think be, it's basically the same. I agree. Dan. And it should be said, if it, somebody has the same, it's actually a dark comedy. It's a funny movie. It doesn't sound it's like funny, a, right, right. funny. It's really funny, right. But it is. Right. Yeah. Under the hill, it's actually come at the expense of Ohio, which I appreciated as someone. I would add that it's not like the the short version of it just given only leaves out. I think that like it's not it's not like this this guy comes to the school and then he's just out to kill people or anything, right? Like it it has to develop to this point, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that what her name Veronica, right? Like she. Yeah. He's kind of implicated in the first case and, and like kind of gets kind of caught up in this guy's uh, 
draft a draft or something like that. And so it's very interesting for that reason. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. So I don't know if now is the time for me to really to do this, but I'm just going to do it. All right, look. So the the basic thesis uh, from enjoyment right and left that is that the genuinely left struggle is the one from the standpoint of non-belonging and that when that turns into a struggle for belonging is usually when it degenerates, becomes reactionary, um, makes a bad news. Identity politics, that ship. Yeah, the, the, the... the, the negative things we associate with that, because in that last stream when we had talked about dirtbags and the PMC and all these other things, we actually talked about there. You know, there's obviously like positive elements of identity politics. It's not like wholesale bad or anything like that. But is there not an essential contradiction here in that in order to not belong, you're always going to be reliant on other people belonging and other people are always because you, I mean, if, if maybe it's hard to say that there's a human nature or whatever, but I mean, I point to society, point to an instance of humans where they're not belonging, point to an instance of humans where they're not trying to belong. And so, so how, does this not ultimately amount to you taking on a position that allows you to tell the entirety of the actually existing left? You're not actually belonging to the left because you have this particularist politics. Yeah, that's pretty good, Dave. I really like that objection. I, I don't think it, here's what I would say. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, the point is, if, if I believed in belonging, I think you would be right. But the whole point is no one really belongs. So it's not like belonging, you can think of it this way. Belonging is an empty set. So when So it's not like, uh, okay, we 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 have our non-belonging in or- because we look we identify these people that belong and we differentiate ourselves from them. No, our non-belonging is just a failure on its own. There's no there's no other side that 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 really belongs. And even those people who really feel like they belong, like even the Heather's at the beginning of Heather's, I think that's what's really good about the film. I don't know about the musical, but it shows how. They're all really insecure, and they're they, they feel their own non-belonging too. So I think when we look at people and we say, "Oh, that like think about who do we think who most belongs to our society?" Jeff Bezos, or I don't know, maybe right? Like even like his. I think we have to look at him and think, "I feel bad for the guy." Like he's 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 suffering from his non-belonging too. Yet he has to put on even more of the air of belonging than all the rest of us. You can, we can, you and I can dress like this, and I don't know what Mikey's wearing. Like we can, you know, whatever we can, we can, we can relax. And he has to constantly put on this air of belonging, right? So the point is that none belong, none belong, and I think that's the real. But that, that, but so the, the deeper part of your question is the second part you said, like that all all societies belong i would say no they don't none do but you're right that all try to belong and i think that comes back to this question of the particular that we were talking about earlier right like there's no way to avoid particularity altogether there's no way to avoid the attempt to belong altogether there's no way to avoid a symbolic identity altogether 
but that's just what we struggle against. So we struggle against our impulse to try to belong. And and I think the the the, the error is to identify it with a person, like to say, that Bezos, if we just got rid of him, everything would be fine. I'm sure when you worked at Amazon, that thought even might have crossed your mind. It would have crossed my mind. All right. But but the point is no, the point is that that figure doesn't really belong in the way that maybe they appear to from the outside. So I think that that would be what I would say. That, that it's not it can't be, oh, I, Tommy Allen, feel I'm this figure of non belonging, whereas everybody no, I I I look around and I see everyone in figures of non-belonging. I think that's why the left is a universalist enterprise. And anyone who's on the side of belonging is always already putting themselves in a particularist position that's never even fully attainable, right? You can't do it. So that's what I would say to that. But it's not, I don't think there's a contradiction because the the non-belonging is universal. There is no belonging to me. Dave, you want to follow up, or can I also give my defensive Todd here? I uh, I really want to discourage myself from getting uh, to, to from trying to be too critical, especially this early into it, because I've only read your books uh, once through, not even the racist fantasy one, but the other two. Just read them once, and I don't. But I'm, I've been trying to advocate against. Uh, being overly critical of a, of a text that you think is worth disagreeing with until you've reread it a couple of times. You know what I mean? Like it, you really got yeah, to sit, no, but... sit with Go the contradictions. Yeah. I, well, and I, I think that obviously like the, the part I like about this, the reason it viscerally appeals to me is because the reason I think I got involved with leftist politics early on was because I felt like I don't belong in American society. I don't belong in Christianity. I don't belong in capitalism. I don't belong in. And then pe- people are like, "Oh, well, you're a white male. Look, why well, don't I don't feel like I don't feel like that is something that I belong to either." And then people, and then it, where it got really annoying is people would say, "Oh, well, you don't feel like you, you belong to it, but your denial of belonging to it is actually a form of white supremacy, Dave." And so then it becomes like, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to identify with being a white male when I've never identified with being a white male. And now people are trying, now I'm, I'm trying to hang out with people who don't belong. I feel like I don't belong. And now the people who I'm trying to be with are being like, oh, actually though, but you need to identify with this idea of being a white male. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, can, I consider that to be like Tucker Carlson shit. I don't, I'm not a white male. What are you fucking talking about? Right. And so for a while I was identifying as non-binary. And the reason that that made sense to me was because I understood the position of non-binarity in gender to be one that's like uh, a, a position of non-belonging. But what it turned out, what it turned out to be for most people who take on the moniker, is for them it actually means they have this special kind of belonging now. And so. For me, it was a position of non-identification with the male roles and blah, blah, blah. But then it turned out, oh, it's actually got all this baggage for a lot of other people who are using this term. And now I'm supposed to be a certain way again. So I just can't get out of this. And so that is part of why I'm bringing up this. Because it's like, well, it it seems inescapable. It seems like people are always going to try. And and maybe this is because, you know, and I want to tie this into 
to see what you'll do with it. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari, you know, belonging as territorialization, non-belonging as deterritorialization. But the two always require one another, and you're you can never have something be deterritorialized for long, right? And so that seems to be like the struggle here, but maybe I'm misunderstanding it. And Mike, if you want to turn that into your question. Well, two things before I, cause I want to turn it back over to Todd, but I, yeah, I kind of have my own, like, like it's no secret. Todd's one of the thinkers who's had the biggest influence on me. And so I'm sitting here going, yeah, but I know what to say to that. And so hold on. What I think you're caught in Dave, and this is one of the things I wanted to focus on Todd, as far as specific chapters, one of my favorite thing, uh, chapters, and enjoyment right and left is where you talk about the super egoic left and its moralism and how it pleases belonging. And I feel like because Dave, I like I've never dealt with the the campus activist stereotype, right? I, I've just never been there in that world. What Dave is talking about is this kind of super egoic pleasing of belonging that you find with whether you call it woke or SJW or PC or whatever, this type of leftism rooted in identity politics where no one is either victim enough or excluded enough. And then if you find yourself in these positions, in these identities, then like Dave's saying, it comes with all of these requirements and you have to self-scrutinize to the point of... So I just see your super egoic leftist thing applying right here at this point no I, I think that's absolutely right mike and i i, I think that there i i i i dave i'm very sympathetic to that i mean position right like i i think that that that's an incredibly hard position to be in and and uh yeah i don't i i but i at the same time i think that those are all that attempt to force you into adopting a certain position, as Mikey said, was super egoic. And it's that that's not a leftist project, right? Like that's not a left like oh I don't care what the person thought they were doing, but they're not that's not they're not part of a leftist project. Now I think it's one thing to blind to say like, no, I'm just colorblind. I don't see and it's another thing to say like, no, I actively renounce like white this, I think it's a problem that we should try to fight against, or, or I'm, I'm actively fighting against racism. Like, I think those are, see, that, that seems to be different than uh, color blindness, right? Like, like, I think that I talk about this book a lot on podcasts, White Theory, but other times in this book, uh, Racecraft by Arbor and Karen Fields. And I think they're so good about, I think they would be very sympathetic to your situation too, Dave. They'd be like, that person's crazy. Like, yeah. We need more people saying like, I don't, I'm not interested in, in, uh, whiteness as a thing. Right. So I think that's a, uh, you know, it's interesting. So I was doing this talk last week and I said, someone was saying that, that, uh, right-wing populism was linked to white masculinity and, and, and it's anti, it's anti-woman and, and, I said, well, are you sure it's white? Because I'm just thinking about Iran, and it seems like Iran is having a real upsurgence of what seems to me like right-wing populism, and it, it they wouldn't call it white. And then someone put in that, they said, you don't understand what white means. said to me, you don't understand what white means. And it means a structural thing. And I said, well, okay, but are you really going to say that that whiteness is 
operative in Iran. That would seem a really bizarre kind of claim, right? But I think it's just like people, I think the, we're so foreign in this identity politic. Like the only way to be leftist, it seems, is to be caught and to be proclaiming an identity that you fail to see the way that, that races don't exist. Right? Races doesn't exist. Like, I think that that's a, that's a such a, like, race is created by races. Race is created by race. That's the point of the Field Sisters. I think it's such a vital point that gets just obfuscated. And I think it's not a, the obfuscation of that is a right-wing project. Like, that is a right-wing project to say, to hide racism under the umbrella of race. That's a right-wing thing. Because then people can say things like, you see this all the time when I was, you know, racism is inevitable because people of different races just can't get along. And I didn't know what to say. I was like, no, we can work, blah, blah, blah. That was dull on my part. What I should have said is, you know, well, racism is inevitable. Once you create race, and once you create race, yeah, okay, racism is inevitable. Right? But, but first you have to create race. Didn't just exist. Right? Like someone says where you're from, you should just say Africa. Right? That's where we're all from. Whenever anybody says, like, you're Irish, I'm like, no, African. Like, I'm not trying to be cute. Like, I, I never got this identity. I thought, I mean, part of it is the benefit of having, like, really repulsive ancestors, median ancestors that are kind of disgusting people. You don't have any pride in your particular identity. And I, but I think that that's, I, you know, I don't think it's, uh, I just think that, that we're so caught up in that. And we think that that's the extent of how you become political. And I think that's a real, I think we need to really fight against that. Well, and then I think, I, I think that's the core issue that I think Dave's getting at is what they've done is if you're a defender of universalist politics, which we are some, they've, they've turned it into a thing. Yeah. But that's secretly serving your particularity, like your, your whiteness or whatever. And that's the thing is like, they're trying to say that universalist politics is secretly particularist politics and so it's all universalism is poisonous in some yeah i think that i i, I agree mikey and i think the the thing to point out is okay yes the super ego dimension i think you're right to point out that but i think one way to fight against that is to always be on the forefront in the fight against racism fighting against sex the fight against self right like i think you can't you can't say like oh let's submerge these struggles to the economic or blah 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 no like be on the forefront in the fight against those things and, and I think Bernie's pretty good. Like, people don't usually say, like, oh, he's just defending the interests of whiteness or white masculinity. People don't tend to say that about him, right? Because he's always on the floor of attack. You know, when Hillary Clinton was interning for Barry Goldwater, Bernie was getting arrested in civil rights this demonstration in the University of Chicago. And now, I don't know why, when they were debating in, what was it, 2016, why he didn't say, like, that seemed to be would be like the irrefutable point about our perspective is on racism, right? Like that's what you should have said. You just should have said, and now I'm going to stop debating you about how you're so enlightened on racism and I'm not, right? Like I, I just, because I, I think he's, he's a kind of ideal, but I think there are other people too that are, that are, you know, leftist figures that are really on the floor of the fight against racism, sexism, and which I think are, are absolutely necessary to fight. The thing for me is, I'll just say it, I think there's a certain pathological aspect going on in the left and that 
oh, every, you know, we're talking about social constructivism. We're not really, you know, identity is socially constructed. And yet then there's a turnaround where whiteness is essential. It's an essence and that it's not socially constructed. It's not contingent. It's something that's necessarily you, essentially you. And so you see, okay, it's like, what else is going on with, with this? Because to me, the, all that does is undermine a universalist politics. And I mean, a real robust universalist politics. And that the, and this is where the left, like you say, what I like about your two forms of enjoyment, right and left, I, to me, they're like Lacan's graph of sexuation, where somebody who's liberal, anarchist, communist, conservative, they can have either form because it's unconscious, right? Regardless of how they identify, regardless of what they say, their form of enjoyment is something else. And they, if they kick into this logic of essentialism, well, we know that the left side of the graph of sexuation, the masculine side, has this essentialism going on in it. That I, I the, 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 the phallic figure, I'm essentially the phallic bearer, all this... Right. And then the other side, the feminine side is the side of subjectivity that knows that I'm not reducible to my my identity. Right. And what you're doing is trying to say no one belongs because essential identity is a simulation. It's ideology. It's not ontologically true. No one is essentially any of their particular identity. We're all negative subjects. We're all, we are subjectively what, not our identity. And it's this split between identity and subjectivity. Of course, we walk around and there's, there's things we identify with and we have common traits and all of this, but ultimately we're not reducible to those things. And our subjective life is our non-belonging to those things. And in that sense, belonging to a culture, to a group, to a race, to an identity, it's always ideology if we if we take it in the strictest sense that i'm fully identifiable with any of this stuff absolutely absolutely totally the the way this uh critique of essentialism kind of well one of the reasons i guess that it matters if anyone's ever been frustrated by like some something that you see quite often not just online but also in actual organizing spaces with essentialism is basically someone will be like, okay, so whiteness or capitalism or whatever the bad thing is, it's got this sort of essence. That essence can be characterized and it gets characterized in a variety of ways. And, you know, we saw on the negative side of some of the BLM stuff back in 2020, uh, things being circulated saying rationality and trying to have discussions this is just whiteness right like like oh and, and then that means okay well then if you have a black person who likes rationality well then they've internalized whiteness right so like the the, the idea of this essence means that you then get to do that where it's like well okay well then the real black people they're the ones who have this position and then the the inauthentic ones who've adopted the the whiteness stamp it's all of that kind of stuff, I think, is something that people generally find frustrating when they try to get involved with politics because I think most people see through it, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I, I wanted to tie in this quote from uh, 
well, Mikey had sent me one of your quotes actually, and uh, maybe it's funny. I'm wondering if it's the one because I, I will wrap this up, Todd. But I, I do. There's one thing I do want to get to too, and Dave, I'm curious to see if it's the same thing. Yeah, it's a quote uh, of of Todd's that to me is basically an expanded version of what Mark Fisher is saying in his his uh, inside his uh, escaping the vampire castle um, essay. I read the quote. The cru- the crucial moment in Fisher's essays when he says the vampire's castle was born the moment when the struggle not to be defined by identitarian categories became the quest to have identities recognized by a bourgeois big other. And I found a lot of, uh, I, I feel like you you basically expand on that point in, in more theoretical terms uh, in universality and identity politics when you say, but it is not enough to interpret every social movement so as to find its universalist politics. There are political movements associated with the moderate left that belong to the particularist logic that characterizes the right because they invest themselves in gaining recognition. If gaining recognition is the end point of a political movement, we can be sure that this movement is particularist. And it goes on, but you're here, so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to read it. But is, is that the one you were thinking of, Michael? Yeah. And because my thing, my question or the thing I want to add is right below that. So it's it piggybacking off of that. Take it away. So, Todd, this is what this leads me. Like you in, in universality and identity politics, you have a section, and this is one of my, it's probably one of my favorite sections in all your work, but uh, you talk about the unrepresentative representation. And so that's, I mean, the last thing here is I just want to ask you about is for you, recognition always fails. It's not really what uh, an emancipatory politics should be geared towards. And then we face the problem of representation connected to recognition because the fight for recognition always involves certain representatives of that particular group to emerge. And it's like Dave was just saying, like once this kind of authority group of a particular identity emerges, they think they just get to speak for this group. And so here's what I wrote. One of the problems with cancel culture or leftist identitarian politics is how it sets up representatives, Dave PMCs, right? Uh, The professional managerial class or however we want to talk about. Okay. One of the problems with cancel culture is how it sets up representatives, PMCs, of particular identity groups. There is ideology at work here since the representative obfuscates the divisions and splits within the group it represents. Let's take some standard woke feminist advice. All men need to, Dave, fill in the blank. What do all men need to do? Sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but like, oh, you bring, put like the, the therapism spin on it. Like we need to. Oh yeah, they need to get in touch with their emotions. They need to become more. Uh, vocally supportive of the cause in X, Y, and Z specific ways. And if you disagree with that, then you're not one of the good ones. Uh, and even if you do agree with it, you have to agree with it in that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, okay. It's always it's always set up as though it's like, well, we've already got this figured out and here's where you fit in if you're going to be one of the good ones. And if you 
want to question this, well, then you're already one of the bad ones and it's been figured out before you ever got here. So don't worry about it. There's no conversation that could be had. Just nod, smile and nod along or, or get out, you know? So, and the problem, of course, is that these specific feminists act as though they speak for the unbarred feminist with a capital F, the perfectly consistent and identical feminist. Well, as Lacanians we, uh, would say, the feminist does not exist. Would Alenka Zupanchich, Mari Rudy, Joan Kopchak, Isabel Miller, Jennifer Friedlander, and Anna Kornblue agree on all things feminist? What about Simone de Beauvoir, Julia Kristeva, Judith Butler? What about Oprah Winfrey, Gloria Steinem, Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez, Ronda Rousey, Bell Hooks, Tammy Faye Baker, Candace Owens? The enjoyment of leftist representative is always rightist, since it's rooted in policing belonging, i.e. it's caught up in identity politics, right? Like, that's the problem with this this absolute substantialized, essentialized figure of the representative of any group is that it is the true essence of the group. It gets to speak. It knows what's in the, the group's interest. And so instead of feminism being a movement filled with contradictions and internal struggles itself, you get the feminist figure who has it all figured out. And if you don't agree, you're not with the feminist movement and you apply this to any group who's who's in a political struggle so yeah it's interesting yeah i think that's exactly right and what do you think what's interesting is that that in a way that's exactly what the critics of feminism do too right like like think about like the way this is a long time ago but rush limbaugh would use that term feminazis right like there's this this idea that a feminist is x right a feminist doesn't a feminist is always complaining a feminist is always uh not wearing makeup, but that, like all these kind of, so I think it's an interesting way that the, the patriarchal critique of feminism and the, a certain form of feminism, like they come together in, in, in thinking like there is this one thing. And, and I, I think you're, I mean, one thing I find interesting is feminism is internally divided, but it's not multiple, right? Like, I think that's, I think that's a really important distinction that there's a, the distinction between the feminism of Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton is opposed to, I would say, the feminism of just pick a couple of people you said, Anna Cornblue and uh, Julia Kristeva, right? Like that. It's not that they're, it's not that they're just differences. It's that there's this internal cleavage within feminism of between a recognition feminism and a, a feminism of universality. And what's interesting to me is that that the, the recognition feminism speaks like it has to present itself as all feminism, whereas I think on the other side, there wouldn't be the same. It, it's an acknowledgement of that divide of that split within the feminist project in an attempt to critique always a critique of the other of that liberal recognition kind of feminism. So I think that's a really important thing. Like, how are you going to, it's not just that the, you know, there, there was a, do you remember this thing where, uh, oh, uh, somebody came out about uh, their two side issue. I can't, I've now forgotten the issue totally. Uh, but, oh, it was, in, it was in, it was in Minneapolis about, oh, about the professor that got fired uh, for, t have you guys heard about this for teaching uh, the, an image of, uh, it was a work of art done by a, Muslim artist uh, had 
Odin stayed, yes. That had the image of of Muhammad. And so just showing this to a class ended up getting this. It was a lecture at the school. She got fired for showing the image. And in the discussion afterward, uh, some one of the, I think he was head of like some kind of uh, anti-discrimination league in Minneapolis said, look, uh, and someone said, look, not, point was not all Muslims are against the representation of Muhammad. Many, many, many are totally fine with it. In fact, the majority. And and this guy goes, well, you can always find outliers on any issue. Like there are people that think Hitler was a good guy. And I thought, well, that was very funny because you actually, in this issue, took the side of the people who would think Hitler was a good guy. When you yeah. took the side of the people that, like, it's the it's basically like uh, Saudi or this idea that we can't represent Muhammad kind of comes from extremist groups in Saudi Arabia and then gets proliferated, but it's it's not a majority opinion in any way. So I find it fascinating that, that we shouldn't say, oh, there's all different kinds of Islam and they, some are poor. No, there's a split within Islam, an antagonism, a contradiction within Islam, just like there's a contradiction within feminism. This like, and I think Dave, this is what the response to like, yeah, there's a contradiction within white masculinity, right? And that's like, like I'm, because there's a contradiction within white masculinity, I can be against white masculinity while still getting some of these advantages that white masculinity is accorded in our society. But I can still be against it because it's a contradictory identity just like any of it. So that's what I would say, just that it's not that there are multiple particulars it's that there's a real like contradiction within feminism there's a real contradiction within every position yeah and however the contradiction pans out i just want people to know uh i i, I want uh, when it comes to this one in particular this ham is it hamline or hamlin the universe hamlin i think is how you say it hamlin yeah uh the the part that has shook me in the last like when that came out is in the article so that art that that professor had a slide before the image with the trigger warning on it saying some people might want to step out the students who were saying they were so offended and 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 that this was like terrible and all of this stayed saw the image then raised this ruckus and uh the one of the students said the thing that I feel like this is a game changer in the world of of HR, in a world that's defined by being. I know what you're going to say. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this. The yeah. student said, "In reality, a trigger warning is an indication that you are going to do harm." I know. I know. I know. So, it's a fascinating. It's fascinating, isn't it? It means like you can't really like. One of the things we do, we teach at the, I, I teach things like uh, Sopranos or something. And I'm like, the, the trigger, everything is a trigger. Like if you're offended by anything, don't take this class. But now that's not going to work. I think you're right, Dave. It's a real game changer in terms of that. So I, yeah, it's really fascinating and, and horrifying, I think, at the same point. Yeah. Think about the parental advisory sticker, right? Like. If you have to put a parental advisory sticker on it, it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't it shouldn't be there. Uh if you have to rate a film R, it shouldn't be there. Like this is 
this is what normie leftists are sick of and they're done with is this type of campus woke logic that says if i'm offended that's the absolute criterion of all truth and the the people i work with for example and they're of different races different genders they hate all of this and any leftist party or organization that's going to facilitate this you're not going to get the vast majority of people on your side and in class no they Working hate class. They i hate it. It. I, agree. I agree and half of them vote democrat half of them vote republican they all are united against it and hate it with a passion and so if the left wants to do anything it has to leave this shit behind i'm just like could we go back to the the medicare for all thing could we just get back to that well, I think it's right. I think that's right. And I think it's super egoic, right? Like it's, the, and, it, and it's, and it's, look, there's a kind of like, it's the, to me, there's no difference between that and my students called Freud a sex pervert, right? So it's the, I, I see it as a kind of, like, you know, why is he so interested in talking about sex all the time? I'm like, really? Like that's, that's your first reaction? Like, I don't know. So, yeah. Well, Todd, thank you so much for, Hey, thanks, guys. It's really enjoyable. Great talking about it. Fantastic. Let's do it again sometime soon. Okay, sometime. Any All right. And enjoy. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Okay. Bye. 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 In an attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time-energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're going to be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state, Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so that we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding on the other hand though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri, and he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who 
took us around Katowice, Poland, and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything. And it was amazing. Is that it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced. And it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy, whereas other people want to take you out and show you around. And so if you're interested in being a volunteer, host, or guide, we have a special form for that. So please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you, touch base with the local community. And if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Bolgrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in, that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with. And yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations that already we've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations. Um, and so thank you and uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a theory underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the university by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek's For They Don't Know What They Do, dedicated forum. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum and so if you get in there early you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves and as new people add into the conversation it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through questions that you had with the first time that you read the text and so i'm really excited for this the reason i've built this website is because i think that this is what's lacking in so many other 
spaces is that ability to return to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like discord and so stay tuned because there is an app on the way thank you to our donors if you want to donate go to theory underground.com forward slash support thank you